0: Um, we have five kids. They've all grown up on us, which I guess is the goal, but it's also the, the pity, you know, because I loved them as, as infants. And Becky and I were, were uh, out of town a little bit this week, and we were seeing some kids, and she said, don't you just miss having a little kid? And I do. One of my favorite kids' toys, I don't know if you ever saw kids play with it, but the little shaped blocks that go in the little shaped holes... And, and it's so fun to watch them try and take the proverbial square peg and put it in a round hole and it doesn't fit and they try to wedge it and they try to turn it and then finally they realize this isn't going there and they move it to where it belongs. Now, there are some engineers among us who would not do it that way, Steve, but <laughs> by and large, by and large, that's what children do. And uh, they make their way through it. And it's amazing because ultimately, if the toy's designed right and we've not bought a factory reject, everything's got its little place where it fits, but it fits only there, nowhere else. It's the early precursor to the puzzles that, uh, uh, as you get older, you start doing. Heavens, even my, my grandmother, till, till her last day, loved putting together puzzles. Now, I bring that in as your introduction because, in some ways, I think of God as the ultimate puzzle master. God is able to put together the ultimate puzzle. It's a puzzle that spans millennium, thousands and thousands of years. It's a puzzle That spans billions upon billions upon billions of people. It's a puzzle that spans gazillions of days and decisions. And it's a puzzle where every human being is getting to make their own decision. Good to have you all back. And decide what the shape of the puzzle piece they are going to be should look like. And in the midst of this thousands of years and billions of pieces representing quintillion, zillion, billions of decisions. The entire puzzle goes together to consummate the will of God. Now that's a puzzle master. That's an amazing thing. And it's fun for me to read Acts and to read about Paul and the role Paul took in the church and to think of it in terms of God as a puzzle master because Paul was one of these unique pieces thinking he's living his own unique story, making his decisions out of his mind and his concepts and little does he realize How God has incorporated his entire life into God's puzzle so that it's a unique piece that fits in a unique place that nothing else could fit. How key was Paul as a piece of God's puzzle? That's a question I want you to think about for a moment. How key, you know, Lanier, you stand up here and you tell us Paul was this very key piece in this puzzle. How key was he? Well, let's forget Lanier for a moment. Let's, let's uh, whoops bring up uh, uh, the book of Acts itself. In the book of Acts, 17 out of 28 chapters deal principally with Paul. That's over 60% of the book. So much so that if we talk about a gentleman from Cambridge University, throw a picture of Cambridge up on our chalkboard, this man's name is worth knowing. It's Frederick John Folks Jackson. I don't know why his parents did that to him, but parents did, he was born in the 1800s. There was a real mean streak in people back then. I do know we've got Steve the engineer and I've got another engineer mathematics friend who's here today from Florida, uh, Dr. Greg Sawyer. Nice to have you here, Greg. And, 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 And out of knowing I have two of my favorite engineer people, I thought you would be interested in knowing that Frederick John Folks Jackson, when you read stuff by him, he reduced his name down to F.J. Folks Jackson. But being engineers and mathematics people today, we can then reduce that down further to Fj squared. (laughs) Now, Fj squared, oh yeah, it'd be F, okay, thank you, F squared, J squared, is that, okay, the engineer's correcting my math. Okay, so, uh, yes, I forgot, Fj brackets squared, how's that? Okay, so F squared, J squared. He put together as an editor and writer a five-volume work on the beginnings of Christianity. He was a church historian. He was one of the top scholars of the 20th century in the first half of the 20th century. And so take a gentleman who is famous even today for his knowledge of church history, and let's look and see what Folks Jackson said about how key was Paul as a piece of the puzzle. Folks Jackson wrote the following. Paul found the church, a small Jewish community, with crude messianic conceptions. He left it a world organization in which there was neither Jew nor Gentile. Paul was an absolutely critical piece who was unique because he had his foot planted firmly in two worlds. Okay, do not make fun of those feet. I took that picture this morning because I couldn't find one on the web that would work. I went in and put sandals on so I'd look rather New Testamental. Paul had his feet firmly planted in two worlds. In the Greco-Roman world and in the Jewish world. In a puzzle of life, he might have had the right number of knobs and holes, but he still won't fit that puzzle unless he's got the right coloration to tie together the surrounding pieces. Paul had that. And so with that view of Paul, we're going to launch over the next couple of weeks into an introduction of what made Paul, Paul. So we can better understand how Acts unfolds with Paul as God's critical piece in the church. A critical piece. Fair? So let's start there. Paul had his feet firmly planted in two worlds. The Greco-Roman world. And the Jewish world. Now, if you're like me, you might be wondering, just what did Paul look like? Well, if you've got an illustrated Bible, that's not going to do you any good because it's whatever an artist dreamed up. The original had no illustrations in it. So when we ask what Paul looked like, we don't have a biblical accounting. But there is a book... A, we'd call it a book, it was probably written as a scroll, called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. It's not an authentic story. It's a story that a good church man made up and tried to pass off as authentic. Got in trouble for it. Got kind of kicked out for it. But he was authoring a work at a time when there were probably still people alive who had a memory of what Paul looked like. And if you're going to write a work and claim that these are events of the Apostle Paul's life, it makes sense to me as a lawyer. I got to tell you something. So I had this case one time, okay? This guy comes to me and he says, hey. I want you to sue this big oil company. I think it was Texaco. I said, what do you want me to sue them for? He said, well, they agreed to sell me these properties. And then they uh, uh, backed out of it. And I had handled a case similar to that before against Amoco. And had, had uh, done, we'd done fairly well with it. So he had known about that. And so I said, well, do you have a written contract? Oh, I do. I said, let me see it. So he gives me a contract. And it's got the signature of the Texaco vice president or somebody on it. And then and and I look at the contract and it's 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 a real contract. It's got real terms. It it describes the properties. It it's got all of the right things that make you think this is believable. It just so happens it probably had a forged signature on it. So we quickly said, "Hey, uh-uh. <laughs> you know, can't do that. Sorry, not handling this case." But you know, if he had handed me a deliberately phony contract where I could look at it and Texaco was spelled T E X E C O, I'd have looked at it immediately and said no. But it had all of the markings of making it look genuine. Which meant I had to really dig in to figure out whether or not I thought it was. Make sense? Okay, so now the Acts of Paul and Thecla. It's got all of the indications that might make you think it's authentic. But the early church discovered it was not. So, with that in mind you might be interested in knowing it contains a description of Paul. And while this is not a first, uh, a a biblical description of Paul, the lawyer in me says, pretty good chance it's probably pretty dead on right. Because you don't try and pass off something as real if people are going to be able to read it and say, nah, that's not what he looked like. I saw him. So what does it say? Says Paul was a man of middling size, and his hair was scanty, and his legs a little crooked. He had knobby knees, he had large eyes, his eyebrows met, and his nose was somewhat long. He was full of grace and mercy. At one time, he seemed like a man, at another time, he seemed like an angel. So, with that description of Paul. I went through the internet and I tried to find the painting that I thought best described such a fella. This is the picture we'll use in our PowerPoint from here on out. I figure he's about middling size with scanty hair, large eyes, his eyebrows almost meet. I can probably Photoshop those in next time. His nose seems somewhat long to me, full of grace and mercy. Uh, I sort of see that in his eyes. So this is Paul for us. Now, some of you may be asking, was he Paul or was he Saul? I made reference to this a few weeks ago, but I thought we might as well throw the chalkboard up and talk about what was what in his day. We know that Paul was a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, you were required to register three names. Some Romans had four and more. But there were three names for a good Roman citizen. uh, Gaius Julius Caesar, for example. Three names. Your first name, your prynomen, as it was called in Latin, is uh, uh, simply that, your first name. Your second name is your nomen, and that is your clan name. Gaius Julius Caesar was from the clan Julii. Okay. Your third name, oh, by the way, Paul... We don't know what his clan name was. Uh, Your third name was your cognomen. Your cognomen was your nickname. That's what we know for Paul. We don't know his first name. We don't know his second name. But Paulus would have been the Latin or Paulos in the Greek, which is the way we read it in the New Testament. Paulus was his nickname. That's what his parents gave him at his birth. And that's what they called him. You might be interested in knowing. In Latin, Paulus means little. He was their little baby. He grew up to be middling, but he started out little. Because Paul was Jewish, he also had a Jewish name. His Jewish name would have been pronounced Sha'al. It's the king, first king Israel had before King David, King Saul, pronounced Sha'al. It means to ask. So Saul is named, to ask in Hebrew, he was just little in the Greek, I mean in the the Latin. That's his name. So now, his personal name, again, as I told you, we don't know. Those names, though, are why Luke is able to call him Saul, especially in his early Jewish culture. When he's doing things as a Pharisaical Jew in antagonism to the church. But once Paul is out on the mission field, with a couple of exceptions, we see Luke shifting and using Paul's Roman name. I told you Paul had a foot in both worlds. That's true even down to his name. Now, was he Paul or Saul? He's both. Let's keep going. We're going to use Acts to look at Paul. And this is a really good time for us to ask this question that we've yet to really ask about the book of Acts. And that is, how good is the source? How reliable is the testimony? As a lawyer, the last thing in the world I want to do is put someone on the stand to testify about something they really have no knowledge about whatsoever. So if I'm going to go to the book of Acts and I'm going to examine the book of Acts for information about Paul, I'd like to know, is Acts reliable? We're here in a Southern Baptist church. So there's part of us that just gives a hearty, of course it's reliable. If it wasn't, why would we be in here studying it? But it is still fair to ask the question and examine the writing. It is fair because it is useful to us to understand that we're not believers just because we took off our glasses and all of that blur, unfocused stuff we out there out, we see out there, we just take for granted to be true. We're believers because we can put on our glasses and we can get out a microscope and we can put it under the microscope and we can look at it in great detail. And we can assess whether or not we're believers out of tradition or believers out of intellectual conviction. And I really want to be one out of intellectual conviction. So I've spent a lot of time examining Acts, but I thought, I'm your teacher. What good am I? So let's go to someone who's got more stud credentials than some old worn-out trial lawyer. Let's go and throw up on our chalkboard a picture of Sir William Ramsey. Sir William Ramsey, William Mitchell Ramsey. There are actually several Sir William Ramseys, a world-famous chemist by the same name. This is Sir William Mitchell Ramsey. He was an Oxford archaeologist in his day... He was the most renowned authoritative archaeologist there was of the area of Asia Minor. That's modern Turkey, Syria, down a little bit into Lebanon, but that area of the globe. He wasn't a a, a theologian, he didn't come to the book of Acts arguing theology. He wasn't a Southern Baptist trying to validate his faith. He wasn't a Presbyterian or a Methodist or a Catholic or anyone who had any religious vested interest as a theologian. He was Church of England. He was a God-believing man. But he wasn't out there with a theological or biblical agenda. He was just an archaeologist going out there doing his thing. Now, he got knighted by the crown because he was so good at what he did. He was one of the original members of the British Academy. One of the first scientists that they put on that exclusive uh, 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 professional roles. Here's what he thought about Acts as he went into the archaeological field of Turkey, where so much of the book of Acts unfolds. William Ramsey started out his archaeological endeavors believing that Acts was, quote, a third-rate history written in the second century by someone far removed from the events that really had no clue what was going on. He went and did his archaeological work with the idea that Acts is useless for history. And then he starts working. And as he starts working, he starts finding that Luke uses unusual names for officers of cities that no one thought even existed before. And then Ramsey discovers that in that city, that's actually the name that was used. And over and over and over, similar events start happening. And so William Ramsey comes out and here's what he finally says. And he's not moved to this position out of religious conviction. He's moved to this position out of intellectual demands of his archaeological work. He says the following. The characterization of Paul in Acts is so detailed and individualized as to prove the author's personal acquaintance. Moreover... The Paul of Acts is the Paul that appears to us in his own letters, in his ways, in his thoughts, in his educated tone of polished courtesy, in his quick and vehement temper, in the extraordinary versatility and adaptability which made him at home in every society, moving at ease in all surroundings and everywhere, the center of interest. Whether he, it's the Socratic dial, dialectician in the Agora of Athens are the rhetorician in its university, are conversing with kings and proconsuls, or advising in the council on shipboard, or cheering a broken spirited crew to make one more effort for life. That's what he has to say. And as for Acts being a third rate history written by someone far removed from events, Ramsey said the following Acts was written by a great historian a writer who set himself to record the facts as they occurred. A strong partisan indeed, but raised above partiality by his perfect confidence that he had only to describe the facts as they occurred in order to make the truth of Christianity and the honor of Paul apparent. This is a man who answers the question, how good is our source? Not because he inherited it, but because logic and the dictates of his scientific work drove him to that conclusion. And he's not alone. So how good is our source as we read and study about Paul in Acts? First rate. First rate. With that in mind... Let's get some idea of what Acts teaches us about Paul. There are two passages I really want us to look at for a moment. The first we find in Acts 21. Starts around verse 27 and it goes for a while. But let's just get the flow of it. We'll go to the the Elmo for a moment and um, see what we can pull up here. Here we are, Acts 21, starting with Verse 27 uh that helps that helps we're still making it help a little better okay paul's been in the temple he's about to get arrested when the seven days were almost completed the jews from asia seeing him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd laid hands on him crying out men of israel help this is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people, against the law, against this place. He even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So the people all grab Paul and they start beating him. And as they're doing it, as they're seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune Of the cohort, this is the Roman soldier in charge of keeping the peace. That all Jerusalem was in confusion. So he takes soldiers, he takes centurions. That tells you these are big guys. He's taking people. He thinks of big riots breaking out in Jerusalem. Centurions are the soldiers who are over groups of a hundred. And he runs down. When they saw the tribune, when they, the people beating Paul, saw all these soldiers coming in, they stopped beating Paul. The tribune comes up, he arrests Paul, he orders Paul to be bound with two chains, and then after he arrests him and chains him, he starts inquiring who he was and what he had done. We've come a long way. Now we generally find out who you are and what you've done before we put you in chains. Just a free gift from the lawyers. (laughs) Some in the crowd were shouting one thing. Some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, the tribune just ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks. When he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob was shouting away with him. Now. We're in context. Look at what we learn. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, tribune, may I say something to you? The tribune said, do you know Greek? Now, two possible meanings here. Paul may have spoke to the tribune in Latin, assuming the tribune was a Latin speaker. And the tribune could probably speak Latin but may have been a Greek speaker and saying, do you know Greek? By the same token, and more likely, Paul spoke to the tribune in Greek. And the tribune is answering him with a little shock in his voice. Do you know Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Explains why he took hundreds of guys, doesn't it? Paul said, I'm a Jew. I'm from Tarsus in Cil- Cilicia. I'm a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Yeah, Paul could speak Greek. No, he wasn't an Egyptian. He was a citizen of the city of Tarsus, no mean city. Now, you may be saying no obscure city is better, but I. If you've memorized it in the King James, they said no mean city. That's a mathematics term, Steve. It means the mean is kind of an average. Okay, anyway. Um, A citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak. So he's given permission. Paul, standing on the steps, motions with his hands to the people. By the way, those are the little things that tell you this is an eyewitness account. You don't just insert actions like motioned with his hand to the people unless you see it. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. Saying, brothers and fathers... Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. As Paul says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, what do we get from this? Let's go back to the PowerPoint, please. Paul starts out, and we're going to come back for a moment to Acts twenty two twenty seven. 27. But let's focus first on some implications of what we've just read. Paul says, I'm a citizen of no obscure city. I'm a citizen of Tarsus. That opens up some interesting information to us. Paul would not have just said that if that had no meaning at all in his day. But it did have meaning in his day. It had meaning to that Roman tribune. It had meaning that we need to understand. So to do that, we're going to throw up a little map. Thank you, Google Earth. The A is Tarsus. That's the Mediterranean Sea you're seeing there. The green down at the bottom in the middle. That's the Egyptian Delta around the Nile with its fertility. You can sort of make out the Dead Sea in the lower right-hand corner. It's got a little bit of blue in it with a bunch of white, and that would be the Sea the Sea of Galilee's up above it a little bit, connected by the Jordan River. Go all the way up the coast past what was then Phoenicia, is today Lebanon. Go up through Syria, where around the corner, boom. There's Tarsus. Now, if we blow that up a little bit more so that you can see it, you can remember from last week why it was that Barnabas left from Antioch and went and found Paul in Tarsus. It's not that far from Antioch. By the same token, we're going to reference a passage in a little bit where Paul writes to the churches of Galatia, the letter to the Galatians. That's further into Turkey from where Paul was. So with that as an idea of where Paul is, you can go to Tarsus and still see ruins today of, of uh, uh, the old Roman city that had been there. You can read about Tarsus from the ancient Foders. What's the good uh, tour book? Foders, Foders, F-O-D-O-R-S, what else is there? Fedors, you pronounce it. Who else? Rick Steves. This is the Rick Steves of Roman times. His name? Strabo. Strabo was the world's first writing geographer. He wrote about the time of Paul. He died 25 AD. So I guess he died 25, 35 years before a lot of the events we're reading about. But uh, pretty contemporaneous with Paul, and he wrote about the geography of his world not only as here 's where it is, and here are the roads that connect, but he gave biographical information about those places, so we 've got an ability to read his his geography if we could go to the Elmo for a moment. And when you read his geography, Strabo's geography, I've got books 13 and 14 here, which are wonderful. They give you the Greek on one side, and they give you the English on the other. So let's, no, let's go English. Here's what he has to say about Tarsus that is particularly relevant. He started out, let's go up to the start here. Let's go up to his beginning, chapter 13. The people at Tarsus have devoted themselves so eagerly, not only to philosophy, but also to the whole round of education in general, that they have surpassed Athens, they've surpassed Alexandria, and any other place that can be named where there have been schools and lectures of philosophers. And we're going to read in Acts about Paul going to the Agora, In debating the philosophers of Athens. And when Paul does that, Paul quotes philosophers and poets from Tarsus. Tarsus, you know, we think Athens, well, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. We think of Athens as the heartbeat. And well, it has been historically. But at the time of Paul, it was surpassed by Tarsus. Any other place that can be named. It's so different from other cities that the men that there, the men who are fond of learning, are all natives. They're actually from there. Foreigners are not inclined to go there. This is a self-made School of philosophy. Neither do these natives stay there. They complete their education abroad. And when they've completed it, they're pleased to live abroad. And a few go back. Paul started out there. He goes abroad to complete his education in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel. Paul did go back, but he did not go back to stay. Um, uh, you you can keep reading, it, it's got more, st- let's just read a little bit more. We're doing, a, well no, we're not doing good on time. But this lesson's going to stretch for a few weeks, okay? Further, the city of Tarsus has all kinds of schools of rhetoric. In general, it not only has a flourishing population, but is also... Most powerful, keeping up the reputation of the mother city. They had cedar trees nearby. This is where Mark Antony and Cleopatra were hanging out. This is where Cleopatra was seeded part of the land because those cedar trees would have been useful for her boats. We can read more that's relevant about this uh, uh, uh. Look, look at these philosophers. Among the other philosophers whom I could well note and tell their names. There's Plutaides, there's Diogenes who were among the philosophers... ...that went round from city to city and conducted schools in an able manner. It goes on and on and on. talks about Artemidorus and other people. This was a famous place for rhetoric, which is lofty speech. This was a famous place for philosophy which is the study of wisdom. This is what makes Paul so profound when Paul writes to the Corinthian church the following. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech, a.k.a. rhetoric, Or wisdom, aka philosophy. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul was well prepared and versed in rhetoric, lofty speech, in wisdom and philosophy. He quoted it to the Athenians, he argued it to people. He had the ability to speak. It was native to his city. It's what he grew up with. But it was trumped by the power and desire to know nothing among the Corinthians except Christ and him crucified. Very powerful. So there's a lot that we learn, if we go back to the PowerPoint. There's a lot that we learn just by looking at the fact that Paul was from Tarsus. We can go a step further. Paul's language reflects great knowledge and understanding of the Greco-Roman world. And we can read Paul's metaphors. He'll talk about running races because the race course was an important part of any Greek city. Paul will talk in terms of winning crowns, which are wreaths that were given to the the victors in the games. Paul will use metaphors of of shipping. Paul will use a number of different metaphors that reflect his cultural upbringing in the Greco-Roman world. But one of the phrases that perhaps is most useful to us, we find in his letter to Galatians. I told you we would look at what he wrote to the Galatian church. You can look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 and 25. And you get um, Paul using the local language. The law, and he's talking about the Old Testament here. The law was our guardian until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Now that word guardian... That word guardian is a very unique, ah, that's, sorry, you can't say very unique. It's either unique or not. Okay, uh, the word guardian there is unique to that time and place. It's a pedagogue. It is a, um, 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 let's see if they give us something down in the footnote. They don't. They translate pedagoge as as guardian, but what a pedagoge was was a cross between a nanny and a bodyguard and a a babysitter. When you had a kid and you were going to educate that child... The pedagogue was responsible for giving the initial education, taught right and wrong, taught manners, taught proper behavior. And then when that kid would go to school, it was the pedagogue who would walk the kid to school, deliver the kid to school, pick the kid up and take him home because the streets weren't safe for children to be out walking. Molestations, grabbing the kids, all of that very common in that day. So you had a pedagogue who would rear you, teach you your manners, teach you how to behave, and then take you and deliver you to where you needed to go safely. Paul says that's what the law was for Jesus. The Old Testament law was there to teach us our manners, teach us how to behave, and to keep us safe while it delivers us and takes us to Jesus. See, it's a profound illustration that we only get if we understand Paul's not simply in, the, Roman, or in the, the, the Jewish world. He's in the Roman world as well, the Greco-Roman world. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, please. There is a third thing that we can look at here briefly. And we don't have a lot of time, so we're going to get into it more next week. Because I want to talk to you about the points for home a little bit extra today. Paul's Citizenship. If you think about Paul and citizenship, two things might echo in your head. Number one, Paul himself not only was a citizen of Tarsus, but he was also a Roman citizen. That's a big deal. Roman citizenship was something that initially, initially until the 100 B.C. era, was exclusively for Romans. Men, free men in Rome, so that they could vote for who was going to be in the Senate. Over that 100 years before Christ, Roman citizenship expanded beyond the parameters and city limits of Rome. When there was a need for all of Italy to come to Rome's rescue, the decision was made that all freedmen in Italy that merited it would have that right to vote, would be citizens. And over time, then, it expands out into the empire... For people who did particular favors, whoops, or showed themselves extra uh, uh, valuable, sometimes for sale. Paul's family had gotten citizenship before Paul was born. And with that citizenship came rights. He wasn't supposed to be tried. Without a right to appeal, he wasn't supposed to be crucified, he wasn't supposed to be chained without a trial, he wasn't supposed to be flogged or beaten. And as we read through the account in Acts, we'll see where those things happen to Paul. And Paul steps in and plays the Roman citizen card, sometimes to prevent it from happening, which he did with the tribune here. He told the tribune, I'm a citizen of Tarsus, but the tribune still orders him to be beat until Paul comes back and says later, no, 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 no. I'm also a Roman citizen. The tribune says, how'd you get that? It Mine cost me a bunch. Paul says, I was born that way. When Paul's been beaten and put into jail at Philippi and, and the time comes to release him, Paul says, Hey, I'm not leaving. Why aren't you leaving? We're letting you free because you beat me and I'm a Roman citizen. At which point the magistrate's kind of like, Oh, I'm in trouble. And Paul Paul will play that. But the other side that ought to be echoing in your brain on citizenship is Paul uses that linguistically as a metaphor to talk about us. Because while Paul was a Roman citizen, that was rare. But Paul's writing to the church and telling all of the church that we are all citizens and not of some puny little Roman empire that one day will be just something in the history books. But our citizenship is in heaven. And that's a citizenship that we've all been given, not because we earned it, but because of the grace of our God, who justly, through the death of Christ, gives us that citizenship. And it's a profound thing for Paul. So Paul's got all of these things. So where does that leave us and what are our points for home? I've got three. One of them is in your handout. Two of those in your handout we're saving for another day. So you get two new ones that aren't in the handout. So here we go. First one. Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Paul's going to beat the church up. As he's on his way, he approaches Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shines around Paul. Paul finds the Lord. Now, here's what I love about this. All of the things we've studied today about Paul that made Paul uniquely God's tool, the right piece of the puzzle, realize everything we've looked at about him today had already happened before he met the Lord Jesus. God's able to take everything in your life and in my life, Even things before we were ever serious about God. Even things before we were turning our attention to God. He can take it all. And he will take it all. And use us uniquely as a piece of his puzzle in his big historical puzzle. That's you and me. Yeah, but I did horrible stuff. Oh, maybe a few of you are murderers like Paul, but I'll bet most of you aren't. Yeah, but I was, oh, maybe a few of you were locking up people in the church and trying to stomp out the kingdom of God, but I think most of you weren't. God used every single bit of that and redeemed it All of the bad decisions and all of the sin and all of the mistakes and all of it, God was able to redeem in a way. Doesn't mean it was a good thing that happened. It means that God can take the worst polluted garbage and recycle it and make it something brand spanking new and used for the kingdom. And that's you and me. We're this, we're not that. There is a piece that we fit that we've been uniquely shaped for. And our job is just to prayerfully seek God on what it is and to find it and to be it. I love that Centur or that tribune saying to Paul, "Do you know Greek?" We can answer that. No. Noon in Greek, if you want to say it. Kind of ironic, you know, answer you know Greek and Greek, no. Anyway, or you can answer it in Spanish, no. Um, do you know Greek? Well, you may not. But you don't have to. Paul needed to know Greek. You just need the gifts and the talents and the tools and the abilities that God's given you. And those are the ones you bring to bear and use for his kingdom. Do you know Greek? No. But I know how to love my neighbor. I know how to nurture someone. I know how to show kindness. I can do engineering calculations that will make the world a better place. I can do things. And you bring them and you do them for the good of God. Which brings up our last one. Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says that with some of the loftiest words anybody could say. I mean, it's, it's almost a hand in glove. I mean, it's, it's, it's tricky. It's hidden. Paul says, hey, I didn't come preaching to you wisdom and lofty words. Yeah, he didn't in the standard Greek form, but he came with the most profound message anybody could ever have and said it in such an articulate way that God was working through his Holy Spirit to secure it for the ages for the church because it perfectly expressed what God wanted expressed. That's pretty lofty. Even though he didn't do it in the Greek lofty words. See, Paul said everything he's doing, everything he knew, was only one Christ and him crucified. That's the drumbeat. That's that constant drumbeat behind everything he does, and it should be behind everything we do. I'm not saying we don't take out the trash when the trash needs taking out, but we do it as part of being a responsible person who's taking care of a family or taking care of stewardship obligation because that's what we were taught by Jesus. We do it with a smile on our face when we can smile because Jesus Christ died for us. And when the world and the circumstances aren't worth smiling, even when it's a time for tears and a time for weeping and a time for grief, it's not one that brings the world to an end because Jesus Christ was crucified. And so we do it with that drumbeat constant to everything we hear. Would you pray with me? Lord, may we know nothing except you, Jesus Christ, crucified. May it infect everything we say, everything we think, everything we do. May it shine brightly in the darkest recesses of our heart to bring purity. May it shine into our lives in ways that cause us to recoil from sin and evil. And seek to be right before you. And Lord we fall. We make mistakes. We are so far from perfect. But may the blood of Jesus Christ crucified. That washes away our sins. Also redeem us and renew us. So that we experience. Even in the midst of of true moral guilt. The kind loving forgiveness that you've given us. And the hope for redemption. As you continue to mold us into the image and likeness of your Son, through whom we pray, amen.